Welcome to the inaugural season of the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I am your host, Todd Friedman, co-lead of Stoll Reeves Agribusiness, Food, Beverage, and Timber Industry Group. This season, we are interviewing respected industry leaders and discussing how they and their companies are embracing innovation and capitalizing on new opportunities to move their industries forward in an ever-changing world. Subscribe at Stoll.com, that's S-T-O-E-L.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone. I'm pleased to present our guest today, David Muth, Jr. David has a PhD in mechanical engineering from Iowa State University and is the managing partner with Alternative Equity Advisors, which is the asset management arm of People's Company. People's Company is a full-service farmland transaction company that runs a multi-state platform and brokerage for agricultural land. And so Dave knows everything that's going on in the world of farmland acquisitions and dispositions. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for the invite. Uh, Looking forward to talking through some of the fun issues that we've got in farmland. Great. Well, let's get started. Uh, As you know, it's been kind of a crazy year or 15 months. We've coming out of the, hopefully, out of the coronavirus pandemic and Early on in the pandemic, there were a number of dislocations in the agricultural supply chain uh, that had created an interesting environment for, uh, at least from my perspective, from for farmland transactions. What what do you see out there in the farmland transaction space these days? Yeah, it's been a really, really interesting year and a half here. Uh, Certainly, we've seen a swing of the pendulum in terms of the understanding of how farm operations profitability was going to come out. It was looking like it was going to be a really tough year for farmers. Uh, A lot of federal programs and then subsequently a commodity price run had turned uh, 2020 into one of the most profitable, if not the most profitable on record. And then on top of that, what we've seen is the capital interest in farmland is the highest we've ever seen before. So there is an immense amount of capital that would like to get into our $3 trillion asset class in terms of U.S. farmland. And they're really struggling with finding deal flow. And right now, particularly over, depending on region, somewhere in the range of the last four to six months, we've seen an incredible price run that's uh, driven by that interest and the low supply. And so for investors that are investing uh, on a specific thesis relative to the returns of the asset, uh, getting into the asset class uh, is very tough right now, uh, but the interest is incredibly high. So, so Dave, just uh, I'll stop you there and ask a question. Clearly, some of the programs that uh, made 2020 a success for agriculture are not uh, sustainable long term or, or, or not going to exist long term. So what, what's driving that interest in the investment in ag land? You bet. So, you know, the, the primary strengths of U.S. farmland from an investment standpoint is kind of that stability and that consistency in return, uh, along with being uncorrelated with uh, general economic trends and a lot of other equities. Uh, in, in that kind of uh, chaotic environment that we're in right now, certainly uh, markets are doing pretty well overall. Uh, there's a lot of great metrics, but there's also this sort of hint of uncertainty uh, that a lot of folks are feeling. 
And that's really driving that interest in farmland. We also will see some very specific kind of pointed theses from investors where they want to uh, attack some consumer trends or some pretty specific verticals within the farmland asset class that they identify as having a nice runway. Would that be things like organic production, for for instance? You bet. You bet. Certainly one of the key drivers that, that we're seeing right now, consumer trends are uh, really, really clear. Consumers want to have more information and transparency about where their food comes from. Uh, that manifests itself in a number of different uh, kinds of pathways. Organic is one that has an explicit sort of uh, certification behind it where the rules and regulations are well-defined. And that serves the purpose quite well for a lot of consumers. Uh, there's other kinds of natural, regenerative, more social and environmental sustainability aspects that will fit into that also. Organic is, is certainly right there at the forefront. And the key is consumers are willing to pay more. Which implies that the assets then would be worth more in the context of a, of a sale. And so what, what kind of premiums do you see either organic or some other regenerative or other kind of specialized asset able to receive? Yeah, that's, that's really an interesting dynamic. And, and identifying a premium uh, around organic assets is not just a clear process. We did some work with uh, an outfit called Mercaris actually trying to dive into some data. And there's a report that was put out, if folks would like to go look at that, on what is the land value impact of organic certification. One of the real challenges is that the organic certification actually goes with the operator, not the land. The land itself has to meet certain characteristics in order for that crop on that land in a given year to be certified organic, but it is not inherently a characteristic with the land. And the other challenge is that it's not necessarily going to be there next year, right? If, if an accident happens relative to perhaps an overspray by a neighbor or perhaps some sort of spill, et cetera, it is a year to year proposition that that organic certification uh, happens. And so from a land value standpoint, there are regions within the, the country. Uh, the Pacific Northwest is an example where you can identify a baseline premium that's not really substantial, but a baseline premium, maybe five to 10% for organic land. In other parts of the country, uh, Midwest is an example, there actually isn't a clear premium on organic land. And we actually have seen sales where organically certified land or, or land that facilitates that organic certification will trade for less than market values. That's, that's interesting. Um, and maybe that's a good transition thinking about the difficulty of capturing that premium um, to what I've heard you call the financialization of the ag sector. Why don't you talk a little bit about what that term means and, and what it implies for the future? It's been a pretty inefficiently capitalized asset class to date. And right now on that $3 trillion asset class, we're only about 14% leveraged. It's really an incredible statistic. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is the nature of farmland within families and how a lot of it transitions even off market. And right now, generally speaking, we're still seeing 60, 70%, again, depending on 
Yukon region are being bought by owner of farmland for sale is being bought by owner operators, right? So what we see going on, and we also have these incredible demographic trends. So about 82% of the U.S. farmland right now is owned by somebody 55 or older, and about half of that is owned by somebody 75 or older. When we put these characteristics uh, together, uh, there's going to be a really significant turnover of farmland as we look on a 10 to 20 year basis. And we're also going to see a lot more efficient capitalization of that farmland. That inherently will be tied to more investor capital, uh, in a lot of cases, institutional money uh, coming into the asset class, which will stabilize some of the value proposition, some of the price points, and actually add a little bit more of a notion of a true investment grade asset class in terms of pricing, as opposed to, you know, the old adage I hear from my father all the time, I'm from a farm in Iowa, is the farm across the fence comes for sale once in your lifetime, and you've got to be willing to pay for it, right? And that uh, creates a little bit of an interesting skew and kind of an incredible dynamic as we look across the assets asset class now. So does that in your mind imply increased valuation for farmland as, as that comes to market and, and it can be capitalized more efficiently, whether with debt or, or with institutional uh, equity capital? Yeah, potentially. Um, we also definitely see where there's a lot of regions and even sub-regions, little pockets within uh, large agricultural regions like the Midwest where uh, prices are skewed upwards because of that competition between local operators. In those cases, you probably see a little bit more of a stabilization in terms of pricing the assets in order to hit the common return thresholds that are part of the investment theses. But certainly we see uh, interesting dynamics. You could take Iowa and Illinois as an example. Iowa has uh, corporate farming laws uh, that are somewhat restrictive for institutional uh, capital to come in and own farmland. It doesn't fully exclude. There's certainly ways for uh, these kinds of investors to get engaged. Illinois does not. Uh, Subsequently, what you see is there is more variability and a more dynamic price uh, trajectory on farmland in Iowa as opposed to Illinois. It's more stabilized. So probably more so than just uh, added value to the assets, I think stability certainly. Let's toggle a, a bit. I know that when I talk to clients who are interested in purchasing agricultural land, one of the things that they're, cons- they're, they're concerned about uh, these days is risk management and risk mitigation. Specifically, the three I often am asked to think about are climate change, uh, water rights, water availability, and wildfires. And so how did those kinds of things factor into, um, you know, the the space you know, um, an, an institutional investor considering the the value of an investment or how it should be priced. You bet. So if we just think about stepping back up to the asset class as a whole, the the primary challenges for capital to get engaged are identifying deal flow, right? There's, uh, you really have to have a lot of uh, regional and local knowledge to make sure that you can uh, be engaged in that deal flow and then understand 
uh, all of the dynamics of production, whether you're talking about working with operators, whether you're talking about an investor direct operating themselves, and then you know that capacity and skill set to understand water dynamics where it's relevant, and then ultimately execute. And that is the kind of infrastructure that firms like uh, ours is trying to help bring to investors. Certainly, People's Company with the national footprint and regional offices and all the major agricultural regions helps uh, identify and work through that deal flow side. And then as we move down through underwriting and diligence and being engaged with the right folks to understand water dynamics, to understand some of those underwriting risks that you highlighted, on the operational side, this is a really important thing that I like to, to call out to folks is U.S. farmland is pretty unique uh, from our perspective relative to other investment-grade asset classes in that we have a minimum annual revenue floor set by the federal crop insurance program. Uh, that's not a catch-all, right? It's a crop. It's an insurance program where performance dictates future indemnity potential. But that minimum revenue floor actually creates a really powerful tool for stabilizing some of the issues that you highlighted. Climate change, certainly one of them. And we've got lots of effects that we see right now uh, with some major droughts. Uh, certainly out west uh, and some of our assets out there are suffering a little bit from some incredible temperatures over the next few days, even with readily available water, being able to keep enough water on the crops in order to get them to perform and meet their uh, uh, yield potential is going to be quite a challenge. And we've got a floor through our federal crop insurance program to help uh, help us with that uh, uh, revenue level. And, th and that fits with whether you're working on a direct operations kind of concept where the investor is actually operating the farm and owning the crops or working with a, a farmer operator where uh, through a lease program where their revenue can make sure that that lease can be paid in a down year on the crop side. So, so is it then overly simplistic to say from an institutional investor's perspective that the notion of investing in agricultural land or in an agricultural operation by itself creates some diversification, especially with potentially um, some crop insurance buffer there, that um, that's really the, the solution or, or a solution in, in an investor's mind potentially to these kinds of risks, that the risks are unique to the asset class, but the asset class is just a part of a broader strategy. Is that a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, that, I, I agree with that. And and we what we see uh, typically in putting a portfolio together for an investor is there's going to be a mix of some pretty flat lease kinds of assets that uh, have that annual coupon, so to speak, that you clip when you get that lease check and that clicks into the annual return for that asset. And then some exposure into the commodity space with some uh, programs that are either direct operations or some sort of hybrid uh, where the, there's some investment in the crop. And then certainly the, the full direct operations, which can be taking advantage of specific verticals uh, in that supply chain and have some upside return potential. And that kind of diversification is really enabled uh, because we do have that revenue floor. Interesting. And you see, I assume, then uh, your investors 
interested in in those various tiers of of uh, essentially risk bearing right in the in the agricultural space yeah that that's very common and you know it does sort of parse itself a little bit on uh, crop type and production system you see more institutional engagement in direct operations with permanent crops uh, say tree fruit uh, we're doing more and more of it on even the row crop side now uh, and typically there's going to be a, a sort of primary vertical thesis associated with that think organic and even specific organic crops into uh, cornered markets that create a little bit of extra value uh, as an example great one of the things that we've heard a lot of talk about is uh, changes to the tax code and uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how changes in the tax code might impact the, the climate for investing in agricultural operations. Yeah, you know, candidly, we wish we knew exactly how this was going to play <laughs> out. We've been trying to uh, pay attention, certainly, to the conversations in the news and figure out how to play it just a little bit. Uh, but there's still a lot of uncertainty. So there's there's a few primarily primary high impact issues at play. Uh, it feels uh, very likely that capital gains rates are going to increase. Where that number lands, uh, it's not exactly clear, uh, but that will certainly impact people's decisions to uh, buy and sell, to transact. Uh, when we start looking at some conversations around eliminating 1031 exchanges, uh, that section of the tax code for uh, deferring capital gains through a, a like uh, asset, that could be a high impact uh, kind of outcome also. It's much less clear that that's going to actually come to fruition versus what feels more likely from a capital gains increase standpoint. And then a third one that we've heard at least a little bit of chatter around is eliminating stepped up basis associated with uh, moving farmland assets to heirs. And you could create a hypothetical scenario where if stepped up basis was removed um, right now, uh, certainly in a lot of parts of the country and dynamics, uh, most people want to die with their farmland in order to give their heirs the option for stepped up basis to eliminate a, a very, very substantial capital gains burden that would most likely cause them to have to sell the asset, right? If you eliminated 1031 exchanges and you saw a increase, a sub significant increase in capital gains tax, and these were all to happen and then be in effect in 2022, it would be really hard to fathom the amount of farmland that may look at hitting the market yet this year, given the demographics that we talked about earlier. In fact, I, I would say I, I already sense in, in my world that uh, there are some folks out there who are pre-positioning, of course, not knowing what's going to come, but at the margins, right? Someone who may be interested in selling in the next few years saying, hey, I better get this done in 2021, like we saw at the end of 2020 with a lot of people doing estate planning, thinking that the estate tax exemption was going to uh, was going to change. Absolutely. So do, do you see the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're having conversations probably, I'd say, on about a weekly basis with assets under management and, and uh, investors that we're working with around, do they need to look at 
potentially making some moves, adjusting some portfolios, uh, shedding some assets and, and trying to recalibrate to the world as we see it right now within their portfolios. And there are definitely several that are close to making moves. And in a world where that ended up occurring, where there were tax changes over the horizon that drove a lot of properties into the market, do you see that as an acceleration, as causing an acceleration of this financialization of the of the sector? I mean, would those properties be then more likely to be acquired by institutional investors than under normal circumstances in the past? Yeah, this this will be a little bit of a fuzzy answer to the question, but it certainly seems possible, particularly in certain regions. The only reason that I hedge that is the fact that we're coming off of such a profitable year for farmer operators in 2020 uh, with a lot of those, as you noted earlier, unsustainable programs that helped uh, buffer that profitability. And we're still in a, a bit of a commodity upswing. Uh, there's a lot of farmers that are ready to buy also. But generally speaking, I would say, yes, that's a that's a very real possibility uh, that that we'll start to see that ball rolling and accelerate a little bit. Interesting. Well, um, that's that's uh, it'll be fascinating to see what ends up happening, both coming out of Washington and then uh, how that affects these these markets. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, we haven't come up with any brilliant uh, uh, deductions on exactly how to position all of our folks uh, within all of this right now. A little bit's going to have to wait and see what actually comes out. Well, if you do come up with any, let us know. We'll <laughs> yeah, have you back on the podcast. I, I'd like to just um, circle back to one item that we touched on earlier a bit, which is sustainability. And, you know, we talked about sustainability in the context of a potential influence it might have on an, an asset price. But I'd like, I'd like you to comment more generally on uh, sustainability in agriculture and what you see from a trend perspective um, and uh, in terms of what's going on out there, what people are talking about. Yeah, this is a really exciting time on the sustainability front. We're seeing a lot of different threads really coming together right now to create some momentum. Uh, certainly the consumer pressures moving through the CPGs and a lot of corporate sustainability reports that were put together over the past, let's call it 10 years on sustainable sourcing are starting to put real goals in place. And they're looking for farmers and production systems that meet certain metrics and guidelines. Uh, we're seeing a really swift movement on the carbon front over the past few years, which has a great potential to add some additional revenue to the land. And then we're seeing the market respond with some frameworks by which people can uh, more clearly and transparently actually get sustainability certifications and that kind of a process behind showing sustainability. We're engaged with a group called Leading Harvest. It's a really interesting sustainability certification. We like it quite a bit because it was developed for landowners, right? A lot of these efforts have focused really exclusively on the operators and the farmer side and, you know, built along this mechanism of we need farmers to get to do X, Y, or Z, and we need to motivate them to do that. Well, we still have about 60% of the land in the U.S. that's leased, and it's often on short leases. That creates a really challenging economic environment for farmers 
farmers to adopt certain practices that have longer term payback periods, whereas the landowner is heavily motivated to be able to um, see and achieve the value of implementing a lot of these practices that are being driven to through these certifications and standards. So Leading Harvest is, is an initiative that, that we've gotten engaged in. We're also working with a company called SIBO to bring some carbon credits to market. We're not anticipating a substantial payment. There's a lot of work to do around registries and finding the criteria and meeting the criteria needed to get those carbon credits to, to exchange from farmland. Additionality and permanence, uh, major keywords that are a little bit of a struggle for farmland um, carbon uh, credits. But it, we are moving, we are seeing actual transactions take place and getting engaged on that front. So a lot of movement and a lot of exciting things uh, around being able to position the assets under management in our portfolio uh, for added value going forward. Sound, it feels like it's uh, early days in some respects with regard to things like carbon credits in, in Agland, but it will certainly be an interesting place to watch over the next five or 10 years. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that is our uh, view of sustainability primarily within the large scale commodities, we're not sure that that's going to play out to bring extra value to the operation and the land so much as, uh, uh, as it's going to become a barrier to entry for those commodities to actually make the supply chain. So we think there's an inherent value proposition associated with the land, and it may not be an added value proposition. It may be that, hey, we have to meet these thresholds to ultimately engage the supply chain to buy our products without a discount. Interesting, yeah, it will be interesting to see, see how that plays out. Well, uh, Dave, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. That was a quick 25 or so minutes, but this has been a great discussion. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, I do want to mention that um, People's Company, your, your umbrella organization, uh, runs the Land Investment Expo, which is an annual conference that brings together major players in the land business. It's in, if I... If I have it correctly, it's in Des Moines every year. Is that right? That's correct. Des Moines and uh, the the dates are, are set for next year. I believe it's toward the end of January. I actually need to check myself. And and you always seem to have amazing speakers there. So do you know who the speakers are going to be for 2022? There is several really uh, excellent folks that are in process of getting booked now. I would encourage people just to watch the website, landinvestmentexpo.com, and uh, keep an eye on who gets confirmed. But there's some, uh, some really great folks going to be coming coming around through the through the event next year also great well we're, we're all looking forward to it we'll watch that that uh, that space and and see who's on the docket excellent thanks again Dave I, I really appreciate your time I appreciate you being on the podcast and uh, it's been uh, it's been a, a great interesting conversation with you over the last 25 minutes or so very much appreciate the invite and uh, appreciate everything you guys do take care thank you Thank you for listening to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. To follow along and get additional insights from each episode, visit stoll.com. Please also take a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is not legal advice and the podcast does not create a client-attorney relationship.